The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is David McAdams. He's the president of the McAdams Tax Advisory Group. Uh, Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me, Jordan. I'm excited to be here. Let's just start with your background a little bit and uh, your training and how you got to forming your own company. Oh, sure. Well, actually, um, you know, I graduated from college back in 1992. I had an accounting degree. I passed the CPA exam. I was very blessed to get all four parts of that knocked out in the first time. And, you know, a lot of people ask me, um, you know, about that uh, process. And I often tell them, well, I had to study so hard for it, I never wanted to study uh, for it again. So I thought I would just go ahead and try to get it done in one shot. (laughs) So um, after that, I went to work for a public accounting firm here in Memphis, Tennessee for a few, few years. And when I was 25, I was blessed enough to have an opportunity to uh, start on my own. So I became self-employed uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, get, getting into the financial advisory business, uh, financial planning. And today we have a thriving firm here in Memphis. We've got uh, several advisors on staff, a very large support staff. Um, and we have a main focus. A lot of our clients happen to be retired, I would say. Um, I'd, I'd have to speculate that at least 90% of our clients are either currently retired or they're probably in the process of uh, considering retiring in the next three to five years. So a lot of our clients are going through unique things that, you know, someone who's 65 or 75 has to deal with a lot of things that uh, someone who's 25 or 30 probably isn't uh, worrying about at that point in their life, or their their goals tend to be very different, obviously. What are some of the big concerns of the retired people and pre-retired people you're dealing with? You know, you'd be surprised at how many people come in our office, and they're, they're at a later stage in life, but uh, they may not even have a will yet. Uh, we, we, I've had attorneys walk into my office that were 80 years old that spent their entire lives taking care of everyone else's affairs and haven't bothered to get their own will in place, or... Uh, very, very common to see people that don't have any action plan if they become incapacitated. What, uh, what would happen to them if they could no longer sign their own documents or make, make their decisions? So they might not have a uh, financial power of attorney. They may not have designated any uh, choices for health care, uh, for health care decisions. Their loved ones might be in the unfortunate position of guessing at what their wishes are. Um, a lot of times we've seen cases where family members don't agree and someone has to make a tough choice, so they're kind of wondering five or ten years later if they really did the right thing or not. So you need so, powers of attorney in a case like that, is what yeah, you mean? You need financial and, and health care power of attorneys, advanced medical directives are, are always a good idea. Uh, some people have a, another document called a living will. Uh, but you'd be surprised at how many people haven't addressed that or 
You'd be shocked at how, how often they have addressed it, but the language is not current, or, or they might be missing some important phrases or languaging for their particular uh, needs at that point in their life. Yes. And then I would assume another big issue would be earning nothing on CDs and money market funds and wanting to preserve their capital and not liking the volatility of the stock and bond market. What do you recommend for people who have a certain amount of capital, need to live off of it, but don't want to take the risk of stocks and bonds? Well, yeah. Just, so first, just to comment a little bit bit more on the issue at hand. I mean, many people are retiring, and they're, they're, one of their primary concerns tends to be, uh, hey, how do I get from here to the grave and, and not outlive my money? How do I make my income last as long as my, as my life might last. Um, and, and unfortunately, some people have not thought about that much uh, prior to retirement. Others have given it a lot of thought and been very diligent in saving. So we see things across the board there. But um, one of the things that our company actually does have a focus on is we tend to, um, you know, have consider a very holistic rep- approach. We don't believe in having too much money in the stock market. We don't believe have being overweighted in uh, bank CDs and things that don't uh, pay enough income. So a lot of our clients do tend to use a lot of categories, and there are categories that if you look at them, you, they, some some categories break down into more of an inflation hedge, uh, like stock-based categories, mutual funds, things like that, for longevity risk. But um, there are a whole universe of uh, interest income and dividend-paying categories um, outside the world of the traditional stock uh, categories or, or mutual fund-based categories that are designed to uh, derive, you know, have people have a, a monthly check coming in or a quarterly check of some sort. So, so what would be some of those categories that, that you, know, you some recommend? Some categories might be everything from uh, preferred stocks with a higher dividend, maybe a real estate investment trust, uh, MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, BDCs, Business Development Corporations, uh, fixed rate, fixed annuities. Um, bank CDs obviously aren't paying too much right now, so we don't tend to use that for income. That would be more of a preservation of principal goal, uh, you know, for safety or, you know. And there are a lot of people, you know, if you ask seniors uh, about safety, many, many retirees will tell you, hey, I want something conservative. I don't want to lose my money. So you will see them tend to weight more of their assets into more conservative categories uh, during the retirement phase. Uh, but again, that varies so much from person to person. It really just depends on their risk profile and their specific goals. Um, so let's talk about some of those things individually. Like you said, mentioned preferreds. Uh, what are some of the preferreds you like, or how do you pick uh, which preferreds are good for your clients? Well, actually, I'd, I'd hesitate to make any specific in rev, uh, rec, investment recommendations uh, over the or, radio. Or even industries, even industries that you like preferreds in. You know, so a lot of the preferreds are financials, and mm-hmm. one of the things that we would look for in a preferred, uh, a preferred stock is, does it, is it a cumulative preferred or is it non-cumulative? So a cumulative preferred stock would be a company that's paying a dividend. Let's say they've got a, for example, a 6% dividend that they pay quarterly, but maybe the board elected to uh, not pay the dividend for a quarter or possibly a year or possibly three years. In a cumulative preferred stock, um, before they can pay the common stockholders another dividend, they have to pay out all of the previous preferred stock dividends to investors before they can turn those common stock dividends on. So let's say they haven't paid dividends for three years. 
they would have to pay the investors 18% in dividends before they could start paying the, uh, the common shareholders. Whereas in a non-cumulative stock, uh, they could just turn the dividends back on and start paying the common share, uh, stockholders as well. So, so we are there a lot of those out there, cumulative preferreds? Are there a good number of them to choose from? Absolutely. There's a, there's a very large universe of, of preferred stocks on the cumulative and non-cumulative side. Another thing we're going to look at is the credit quality of the company. We want to know if, if we feel like the company uh, you know, has a more reliable, predictable ability to continue paying those dividends or whether we think it might be a problematic uh, company that may not be able to sustain the dividend for some reason. Obviously, another thing you're going to look at is industry. Uh, the, a, a very large amount of preferred stocks happen to be um, issued by companies that would be considered in the financial sector, like a bank, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, in different environments, uh, banks, you know, you take the 2008 uh, recession, uh, many banks obviously were having some, some problems back then. They might not have as much sustainability. Uh, whereas you might choose another type of dividend stock, like a railroad or a utility, that you might uh, feel like has more of a defensive flavor uh, to the position. So in the current environment, you would prefer those defensive railroad utilities instead of financials? You know, since you're asking, I mean, in the current environment, I am concerned right now uh, about the market being very high. Mm-hmm. Um, we, at our company, we're big believers that we're in a, a, a potentially in a secular bear cycle, which uh, could be a, a long-term bear cycle. In a secular bear market, you would expect to see a lot of rallies for, for some period, like we've had the last four to five years, but then those rallies tend to peter out and you, you see another uh, potential downturn like we saw in 2000. Or so like so the, the sectors you're talking about, the, the cumulative preferreds, the REITs, the MLPs, those would hold up relatively well in a uh, cyclical downturn? So, so some would hold up better than others. I'll, I'll give you an example of a strategic or a defensive uh, stock might be considered one that uh, provides... Uh, you know, consumables like a grocery store, for example, might be a little bit more defensive. Or I recall that in the 2008 crash, a lot of stocks tanked, but certain stocks like AutoZone, uh, you know, I guess people did not want to go to the mechanic to have their car fixed. They said, I'll just go up here and get some parts and fix my own car. So certain stocks do tend to have more of a defensive flavor and have a better chance of holding up in a recession or not having quite as much volatility or downside pressure uh, in a in a a sell-off. But, of course, if the entire market's tanking, um, you know, all bets are off. You know, any stock can get beat up by getting sold off as part of a larger mutual fund portfolio or... So, so give me a sense of your, where we are today in the cycle. I mean, we've had a major rise in the market for a long time. Are we about to have a major downturn or just a correction kind of so, where do so we stand I'm, at the I'm cycle? very concerned I'm very concerned about a downturn you know, a correction would would be something that might happen in the short term but then recover it could recover in three months it might be in a year but it might be more of a blip on the radar to a long-term investor whereas uh, a bigger decline like the 2000 scenario the S&P dropped approximately 50 percent over a three-year period and it was roughly seven and a half years until it fully recovered. And then by October of 07, we hit a new all-time high in the S&P, just a shade above the 2000 high. And then the market started trending down. And from peak to trough, 
It actually dropped uh, roughly 60% by early '09, and then that took approximately five and a half years to recover. Now, if you're 25 years old and you're putting a couple hundred dollars back in your 401k plan every few weeks or every month, uh, and you're dollar cost averaging and you're buying shares cheap when the market crashes, that may not be a problematic cycle if you've got a 30 to 40 year time horizon in front of you. But take someone who's 70 years old that has a specific amount that they say, okay, uh, my, my mom lived until she was 87 or my dad lived until he was 95, and they might be concerned about longevity. They might be concerned about inflation risk. They might have major concerns in both these areas. And once you get into the income phase, uh, the distribution phase of your portfolio, and you're actually taking money out every month or every year, if you have a large downturn in your portfolio while you're taking distributions, then that could potentially be catastrophic for a retiree. Uh, there's something called sequence of returns and sequence of distributions. So what you take out, when you take it out, and how you take it out absolutely matters. Um, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about average rate of return, but if you happen to average your return by starting off with a, a few large negative numbers in the early years and you're taking money out during those years, um, there are people that have certainly cratered their, their retirement plan. And, Jordan, what happens is every time they take money out, they're having to sell more and more shares to get the exact same amount of income that month. Or, or, they, run, they run out of money before they run out of life, is what you're can, saying. They can run out of money. I mean, there's a, there's a concept in financial planning called Monte Carlo simulations, and it takes you know, a statistical analysis of you know, thousands of data points uh, over, over time and says, hey, what if you retired in April of you know, 1962, or what if you retired in February of 1993, and you were taking out you know, 4% per year or 5% per year, and and what if you were in a 60-40 stock bond portfolio? You know, what would your result have looked like based on those historical scenarios? And it's designed to kind of give a statistical guess at whether or not your portfolio might have a chance of sustaining those withdrawals over a, a 20, 25, 30-year withdrawal period. Yeah. All right, we have to take a break. We have to take a break. Uh, this is all interesting stuff. Uh, my uh, guest this hour, this half hour, is David McAdams. He's the president of the McAdams Tax Advisory Group based in Memphis. Uh, his website is McAdamsTaxAdvisory.com. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. It's a sad fact that fraud is rampant in today's business environment. The headlines scream about once prestigious organizations falling victim to or crumbling due to the consequences of fraud. 
How do you keep fraud from affecting you and your business? Tune in to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Chris has over 30 years of fraud investigation experience, business intelligence, and is a renowned security consultant. Chris and his guests will inform you and help keep you from being the next statistic of fraud. Tune in Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is David McAdams. He's the president of the McAdams Tax Advisory Group based in Memphis. His website is McAdamsTaxAdvisory.com. That's spelled M-C-AdamsTaxAdvisory.com. And welcome back to the show, David. Thanks so much. One of the things we want to talk about is the rollover from 401ks into IRAs. A lot of people have built up a lot of money in their 401ks or 403bs over the many years, and now they're coming to the age where they're leaving the company, retiring. What are some tips you would like to give people about rolling over that money into either a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA? Well, sure. Well, the first decision they have to make is if it makes sense for their situation to actually uh, do a rollover. But, um, you know, there there are some advantages and disadvantages. One of the concerns that people are facing in their 401ks right now is if they're aging and if they're closer to a retirement goal, you know, we talked about earlier about having a goal not to outlive their money. That's a pretty common goal that people have when they retire. But the 401ks are a little bit precarious right now. If you look at uh, historically, um, as someone was in the accumulation phase, if they're younger, they tend to be a little bit more aggressive sometimes. They'll, They'll overweight some of their money in the stock market. And then as they age, sometimes they'll pull back and put more money in the bond strategies or in the money market strategies to decrease risk. And historically, if you're getting to that point in your life and you're getting closer to actually needing the money and taking it out to spend it, um, there were some, you know, we were talking about defensive positions earlier, and you could shift some money into the stable, uh, stable fund or the money market fund. And gosh, five or six years ago, you might have been making 4 or 5% just to park your money in there and wait out a, a risky period in, in your mind. Or you might have moved into a bond fund where you might have had a decent yield from the interest being paid by the bonds inside the fund. And you might have even been hoping for some capital appreciation or growth on the bond fund because if interest rates go down, uh, you know the b- value of bonds tends to rise. So if you're getting a nice dividend on your bond, interest from the bond, and then the bond values went up, you might uh, have fared very well during some of those. So that, that's what's happened in general for the last that's few years. That's exactly what happened. Now, yes. the, the problem people are having today is they say, wait a minute, I'm getting older. I don't want as much risk. Let me, let me shift my money out of the, the stock market over in these other options. 
Well, you have huge inflation risk if you go into the money market fund right now. A lot of money markets are paying less than 1%. I've even seen some recent statements they were paying 0.1%. So if you look at historical inflation on different areas that that people will be retired and needing uh, money for health care, food, gas, uh, things like that, Inflation hasn't just averaged 3 to 4%. You know, we see a lot of retirees getting hit really hard in the area of health care. Health care yeah. has, has had a very high so, inflation. So you're saying for, by, by keeping their money in CDs and money funds and so on, they're earning nothing and they're actually falling behind in purchasing power is yeah, what you're saying. Their, their money won't buy as much 5 or 10 years from now. And so then they say, all right, well, what if I shift into these bond strategies? Well, the concern there is a lot of those bond strategies are yielding lower uh, yields today than they were five or six years ago. And then you've got the threat uh, or possibility of interest rates rising called interest rate risk. And so you think that's pretty likely? I mean, you were saying before you think the stock market is kind of at a peak and it could potentially have a cyclical downturn. Do you think that interest rates are near their cyclical low and could go up? I'm concerned because, you know, either if, if we're like Japan and interest, rate, and interest rates stay low for several decades, um, you wouldn't expect bond funds to be an attractive place to, to have a lot of money during retirement because, again, the yields could potentially stay low if that happened. And then if interest rates rise, uh, God forbid they rise while you're in there and you're, and you're taking money out, then you could get stuck uh, having interest rate risk and, and the bond funds could actually have a loss moving forward. So you're uh, saying the solution, instead of bonds which have this interest rate risk, are the things we talked about before, like the preferreds, the REITs, the MLPs, the business development companies, that's the place... Yeah, so, so because you can't really have a lot of those types of portfolios or, or you know, diversification is always going to be important, obviously. But one of the problems with 401ks is there are different categories of investments that uh, people do not have access to inside of a 401k plan. Sometimes the employer has limited the plan to, you know, 20, 30, 40 investment options. And then they have a great list of funds with good money managers, with good histories. But sometimes the money managers get stuck, unfortunately. I mean, if you're, if you're a bond fund manager in, in a low-yield environment like we are in now, uh, you know, you only have a certain number of things that you can do strategically to try to enhance that fund. Yeah. Um, and then so, you know, the, the other option would be to overweight in the stock market. And again, you know, a lot of uh, retirees would uh, not be well advised to take too much risk. You know, we don't want to have too much in the stock market when you're going into a phase of life where uh, you may not be able to sustain a lot of volatility. You want to preserve your capital. Yeah. In, in rolling over from a 401k, is it better to go to a traditional IRA or is it worth it to do a conversion, go into a Roth, and not have to have the required minimum distribution at age 70 and a half? Yeah, so, so it kind of depends on your, your age, and it, it depends also on your time horizon, the, the amount of time you, you expect to, to have those funds growing after you do a Roth conversion. One of, the, one of the disadvantages of doing a Roth conversion is it's very painful. You have to get from the IRA to the Roth IRA, and to do that, you have to take a little pit stop at the IRS and, and pay tax on that rollover amount. So if you're in a high tax bracket and you do that rollover, and you give, say, 25 to 35% of that money to the IRS, now that, tax, that uh, after-tax money that, that's in the Roth, after the conversion, now has to have enough time to grow back to recoup the tax losses. 
I mean, the better thing to do, possibly, if you had the money to pay the taxes elsewhere, so you're able to, you just have to pay the tax, but not take the tax from the rollover, so you can roll over the full amount, then you yeah. can have, that, that can work a little bit better, is that well, right? Well, it could, but again, that's an age issue and a time value of money issue. It's a, it's a mathematical calculation. Uh, for example, on our website, we have, uh, you know, financial calculators where people can go in and try to determine if making a Roth IRA rollover makes sense. Uh, what you would typically find with a lot of those tools is that the older you are, the less likely it is to be beneficial. Because now, you don't have time to recover the tax is what you're saying. That's correct. Now, we have people that do it at an older age, but they might be saying, hey, I'm going to transfer this money to my, my children and then my grandchildren after that. So they might be looking at a 70-year time horizon. Yeah. Uh, but if they say, no, that's not wealth transfer is not a goal of mine, and they're just going to take the tax hit during their lifetime, it, it may not make any financial sense for them to do. Yeah. We have a pretty short time to go. I just want to get to another topic you were interested in, which is safeguarding your digital data. Um, so people have what you call a digital estate. Kind of describe what that means briefly and how are some ways that people can safeguard their digital estate? Yeah, just think of anything that you access online or, or in a computer or in the cloud that might have an emotional or financial value. I mean, examples could be email or social media accounts, digital photo albums, movie collections. A lot of people have their investment accounts and frequent fire miles. So there's it's a whole array of digital data. Some of it has a financial value. Some of it's more of an emotional value. Uh, McAfee did a study that uh, infers that uh, the average person probably has about $35,000 in digital assets, everything from iTunes library to different sensitive personal records. Um, but again, beyond that, the monetary is the, the emotional value. So, so how do you protect yourself against uh, being in, invaded, I guess, for your, your digital estate? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of best practices. First, you want to make a list. You want to make a list of all those accounts. The second thing is you want to document your passwords and all, all those uh, answers to those secret questions they ask. We recommend keeping the list and the passwords separate from, from your will and your legal documents. And some people are actually creating what they call a, a, it's being termed a digital will where now they're creating a legal document that says, at my death, here's who has access to this information, and here's what I want that person to do with this information. You might want the person to uh, obtain and have ownership of, uh, say, a digital photo album, and you might want them to delete your, your Google email account. So each, uh, each website has their own terms of service that you would uh, want to familiarize yourself with. And then, again, you want to keep those document, uh, store those uh, pieces of information in a safe place. Um, and also it's important to know the law where you live in. There are different states now coming up with their own digital laws, and they don't always match what your thoughts and goals might be. So this is something a lot of people don't think about, really. And then what happens if you haven't thought about this? And you die, and you know, all your passwords and all these digital assets are, are not exactly what you said to do is not done. What happens? Yeah, so for example, I think it was uh, Joan Rivers' daughter you know, had, had a, a tough time uh, getting access to the Facebook account. So, what can go wrong is valuable information or, or information could have an emotional value may be lost forever. In a worst case scenario, your loved one may not ever be able to gain access to it. Some email companies, for example, say in a death event, nobody owns this, 
if the account stays inactive for a certain period of time, we just delete the account and it's gone forever. So in a worst-case scenario, you can lose a lot of that critical data. So you'd want access to those emails is what you're saying. This is like a whole history. Instead of letters in the old day, this would be your whole history. I I, I had one person tell me recently that, you know, when their father passed away, all of a sudden everything became important. All of the emotional, sentimental stuff became important, including his, his photo albums and digital stuff. So it's a, it's, it's a changing world we live in, and this wasn't a big issue, obviously, 20 years ago, but people either are going to make the adjustment or their loved ones are going to inherit a mess when it comes to their digital estate. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been David McAdams. He's the president of the McAdams Tax Advisory Group based in Memphis. Uh, his website is McAdamsTaxAdvisory.com. And thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, David. I've enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. Thanks very much. And we'll be back with another guest after this break. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m., 10 Central, every Sunday. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Greg Melia. He is the president of the Melia Advisory Group, which is based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Their website is MeliaAdvisoryGroup.com. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate it. Just tell us a little bit about your background and uh, creating your own firm and what kind of clients you're dealing with. Well, I've been in the financial services for many, many years, and our primary focus on those that are retiring or, or, or approaching retirement and uh, so what, what are some of the big issues you're hearing from them these days? 
Well, the biggest concern we hear is safety and security. I mean, today, you know, with the cycles we're at with the market, we think we're in um, on a long-term, what we, what I call a long-term do-nothing market, contrary to what you hear a lot of advisors speak on and, and the press, you hear how great the stock market is. But if you actually look back since 2000, we're up only approximately 21, 22%, depending on what day these days you look at, it's so volatile. And what, what what most people fail to realize is that if you look back, and advisors don't talk about this at all, is if you take that 21% and divide by 14 years, um, you don't get a whole lot. And and that's lost in today because all you hear is stock market, stock, you got to be in the stock market. Nobody wants to be in the banks because interest rates are so low, so they're pushed into the stock market, which I don't believe is a good reason. I think that's the reason the market is where it is today is just because of the quantitative easing, which has brought the rates down and has forced people into the market. So you think it's somewhat dangerous for particularly seniors to be in a lot of stocks these days? Yeah, Jordan, one of the things that we see over and over again is fun- foundational or fundamental rules that were existed for years on how much somebody should have in the stock market was dramatically changed as a result of the 82-2000 stock market, which was by far the biggest stock market we've ever seen. So what it did, and most advisors started their practice during that time frame, and a lot of baby boomers today were investing during that time frame, so they experienced just an incredible stock market, just absolutely breathtaking. And so they're... they're their risk tolerance has been kind of artificially higher than it should be, naturally going back in history, looking back historically. So the rules of 100, like the take your age and subtract it from 100, is the most you should have in the stock market. And I'd argue today that's too much. But a lot of times somebody walk in my office and they're in their 60s and, and uh, maybe even 70s and 80s, and they've got you know 75, 100% in the stock market. 30 years ago, that would have been unheard of. That's just unprecedented. But today, it's it's fairly normal. So for somebody who's in that circumstance, who's coming in with a lot in stocks, they don't want to be in bank instruments because they're earning nothing on CDs and money funds and treasure bills. Uh, what do you recommend that they put their money in that's going to grow but still have some uh, safety for principal? Well, that's where if you again, if you look at if you're in a fixed income environment where you're in the four to seven percent, and we get told all the time you can't do it. You can. You have to work. You have to look at it. And you know we don't use mutual funds. We actually use individual assets. And you go in and you look at you know it's something something where you earn dividends. Now, if you've done that for 14 years, where you say you're in a five six percent dividend producing asset, and you've been reinvesting those dividends along all along, then then you've done very, you know you've you've outperformed the market as a whole for the last 14 years, and that's what's kind of lost on today. And you also gain a lot more safety and security when you have when somebody goes to retire. We preach about income, income, income. You know how much can you take out and not run out. And today, most retires, when they go to retire, in fact, I had somebody tell me this a couple weeks ago, I'd been preaching income to them for a while, and they said, Greg, you know, when I finally retired, and I realized that my active income paychecks no longer existed. And it's like, wow, you, you're really correct. It's like, how am I going to eat? How am I going to live? And so income becomes a priority. And So, so what, are some of the, what are some of the vehicles you use to produce income in today's environment? Um, You've got everything from preferred, uh, preferred stocks to REITs to individual corporate bonds. We're not a big fan of the mutual fund bonds. Um, there's, a, there's a reason for that. If you want to go into, we can talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so REITs, uh, preferred, individual bonds, uh, convertibles or something as well? More of the other three than so much the convertibles, but you know, you know, we're, we're speaking about the bonds. You know, one, one thing to be clear is 
people walk in my office and they're confused because they think they have bonds and they think, well, and they're bond mutual funds and they're bond mutual funds. They think that they're fairly conservative and safe. The reality is that most of the bond mutual funds lost 30% in 2008. A, a long-term bond fund can lose just like a stock fund. And the problem, one of the key differences, if you actually own a bond itself and not a mutual fund, is that you get a fixed rate. You know what it is. I bought quite a few the other day at 5% on investment grade. You hold on to that. You're going to earn that 5%. You can spend that income. And you know at maturity, they're going to give the principal back to you, uh, the face value that bonds can be handed back to you. So it's a, it's a nice place to be in as a retiree. You can, if interest so, rates... So you're, you're not concerned about interest rates going up very much then for holders of corporate bonds? I'm really not. I think we're looking like a Japanese market that we've, we've had for some time. Um, you look at our aging population, the baby boomers, which is a whole other topic, but... It, it really demonstrates that I think we're going to be in this low interest rate. Japan's been in this low interest rate environment for 14 years now. We're only seven or eight years into it, this six, maybe six years at this. At so this you, point. Think, you think the rates are going to stay relatively low, so corporate bonds would be a pretty safe place. And let's talk about preferreds a little bit. What are some of the industries that you would like preferreds well, in these days? Let me, let me come back one more thing on the bonds. Uh, the, okay. the key is there, if you, have, if you have a maturity date, even if rates come up and you're living on the income, yes, you'll see the value of the bond go down, but you'll still be able to spend the income. And at maturity, you'll get those principal, those original principal, principal dollars paid back to you, so you can reinvest at the higher rates at that point. Yeah. And that's an important key. Where, with, whereas you're saying with a bond fund, with a bond fund, that might not happen because... It, yeah, it never matures. There's no maturity date. There's no maturity date. You're locked in. I mean, you're, the rates are variable, and, and there's no date that you're going to get your dollars handed back to you. And that's why I wouldn't, if I'm worried about rates, I definitely wouldn't be in a long-term bond fund. All right, so let's talk about preferreds again. As another, it's kind of like a bond surrogate. What are some of the industries you like preferreds in these days? Favor the insurance companies a lot. Um, insurance companies are a good one. You've got uh, some of the banking is okay. There's a few in the utilities. The energy, of course, right now is is getting hit, but you, there's still some good plays out there. You, actually, the yields on them are fairly spectacular right now. But you have to build a stomach a little volatility until the until the, the until the oil prices kind of find their ground. Um, but those in those environment and on the Things with the uh, REITs, we stay away from retail. I still think retail is going to be weak for a while. Um, so we like things like senior housing. Um, you know, senior housing is going to be something. The baby boomers, they can't build enough of that, you know, right now to, to, to make demand. So that's a that's a popular one. Um, health is another good one for either one of those two, whether the corporates or REITs or the preferreds. Um, a mixture of all those. We like to, to, to keep it fairly well diversified. Very good. Okay, um, we're going to take a break, and I'm going to uh, come right back. No, actually, we're not going to go to break quite yet. I want to talk to some other areas here. One area you say is a big interest uh, to uh, seniors is student loans. Now, apparently, grandparents are taking on student loans for their grandchildren. Is that happening more and more, and, and why is something like that yeah. happening? What's the risk to that? It's happening, but believe it or not, it, it's a fair number. Of, it was for themselves. Uh, when the 2009 crisis, you know, when the market dropped by 60%, um, there were a lot of people lost their jobs and weren't ready to retire, were not able to retire at that point. So they actually took on an education, went to, back to school and did some student loans to do that. And, um, you know, actually are now on the hook for that debt, which has created 
a problem because that's you know that's, that's debt that can never be um, you know you you can't file bankruptcy on it. It's um, in fact some of them are even losing their social security is being garnished to pay some of that debt back. Uh, so it's really created an, a problem that we've not seen a whole lot before of. So what happens if you have a senior who comes in with some student loan debt he took on pretty recently for their own education? What do you advise them to do? Well, then get it paid for. Obviously, get it paid off. Hopefully, they were able to land the job. The problem is, you know, the job situation, you know, one of the issues we face in the economy right now is that our, you know, I know that the government likes to doubt that our unemployment's you know, lower, but if you look at our workforce participation, uh, it's actually the 36-year low right now. Those 8 to 9 million jobs we lost in 2009, we've not gotten many of those back. Most of the jobs we created here are service jobs. Yeah. So you've got a real issue out there for workers trying to find good jobs to pay back those debts. So which creates, and you're, you're right before retirement. Also, the issue is people don't like to hire. You know, it's sad to say that you know, retirees have a tough time here all the time, wanting to go back to work because nobody wants to hire somebody that's getting ready to retire in a few years. And so it creates a whole lot of issues for them. So you would not recommend somebody in that circumstance who's kind of, whatever, late 50s, Thinking early 60s. student loan? Yeah, I would really, I would be very hesitant to recommend anything like that nature. Yes. I've been hearing they're helping out their grandchildren as well. So not only their own student loans, but they're helping out because the parents yeah, are maxed out. That. I mean, you know, some of them are doing, you know, you've got more grandchildren and children living with mom and dad. And it goes back to the Depression era. Yeah, you know, we've got a lot of children living back at home right now today. Indeed, they can't find jobs. Now the baby boomers are now kind of hitting retirement. They're they're retiring every day more and more. Uh, how is that affecting the economy, either positively or negative? I mean, baby boomers have been the kind of driving factor in our economy for many decades. How is it affecting things now? That's a great question, Jordan. The we got eleven thousand hidden Social Security a day. And, you know, the, the problem is the baby boomers for years and years, and this is why we can look at Japan, their baby boomers about 10 years ahead of us, they're the ones that have been the driving, you know, two-thirds of our economy comes from spending. Well, as a generation prepares for retirement, you know, they don't spend more, they spend less. They're typically trying to get the house paid for, getting the cars paid for. They're trying to get everything paid down so they can retire and live on a limited income. And that's just you have a whole generation that was really just the engine spending, spending. And in 2007, um, a lot of people argue they hit their peak at that point. And when they hit their peak, they quit spending. So what you've got is you've got all, now you're depending on the next generation moving forward to be that spending engine. And frankly, they've got you know we've got more in government assistance today in the history of this country. So that's why staying away from retail, for example, because you know you're seeing that incomes are going down, not up. And uh, so that creates a problem for, you know, spending in the economy. You can lower the rates all you want, but it isn't going to, people aren't going to borrow money. They're not going to borrow money just for the fact of borrowing money. And that's what they hope by lowering rates is that will induce people to borrow money. So, so is that, that is that a negative? Helping. As these people retire and are buying less and less, is that positive for some parts of the economy and, and negative for others? As you're saying, the buying stuff, they don't need as much, but you say there's an increased demand for senior housing, for example, or health care. Well, sure. I mean, those where they are spending the money is going to be good for those industries. It's where you know where it's weak, though, is in the overall, you know, market where they were spending, and now they've they've really shut that down. They're just not buying like they were. They're just not spending the money as they were. In fact, it's kind of yeah. an interesting study. The younger generation coming up, you're seeing watching them. They're 
they tend to be not into the material. They're not looking to buy housing. Housing, that's another issue that, that you're watching develop right now is that many, many jobs come from the housing sector, and we're watching housing starts, you know, ridiculously low and, and not increasing. In fact, some, some states are going backwards. So and it's just a generation that just does not see a house as being something critical. Instead, of, you know, before it was touted as the best investment of your life, the number one thing you need to do, and you just don't hear that today among the young, younger generation. Particularly if they're living at home and they're paying in the student loans. They don't, they don't want to be taking on houses and cars and that kind of thing. So you can kind of understand it generationally to some extent here. Yes. Well, you've so, you got a generation, too. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jordan. I'm sorry. Well, you've got a generation, too. I mean, these kids are coming out and they're not finding jobs, which is creating, you know, another problem. is because you, you spend all this time and energy getting a degree and then you can't find a job that, that within your field. And, and then you've wasted this time. Now you're in debt and... You're, you end up with some, I mean, I'm seeing it with some folks are coming telling me their children are suffering and struggling with mental issues and, you know, their anxiety levels are, you know, increasing and just, just struggling to make it in the world at this point because they, they feel kind of, you know, kind of hopeless. Not to be depressing here, but it's just one of the faces, that, one of the faces that's facing our kids today. Yeah, no, it's true. And then they, the difference between this generation and the past is they've got many more tens of thousands of dollars in student loans uh, hanging over them that the previous generation probably did not have. All right, we're going to take yeah. a break, actually. Uh, we're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Greg Melia. He's the president of the Melia Advisory Group, uh, which is based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, his website is meliaadvisorygroup.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly-based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy, with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. 
You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Greg Melia. He is the president of the Melia Advisory Group based in Tulsa. And the website to find out more about him is MeliaAdvisoryGroup.com with an O in advisory. Welcome back to the show, Greg. Thank you. So I wanted to get into the long-term historical cycles of the stock market because uh, we have a lot of opinions about this kind of where are these cycles and where are we in the cycle right now? That's a great question, Jordan. Um, we believe we're in the fourth circle, the fourth cycle in the last hundred years, and what we get are these long-term, high volatility, no-growth cycles. And first, you'll you'll have an explosive cycle of eighty-two to two thousand, and you get these long-term, just absolutely do nothing cycles. And in the shortest one that we've had in the last hundred years was sixteen years. The longest one was twenty-five years. Um, I'm expecting this one to last another eight to ten years yet, where we have a lot of volatility, no growth. And one of the key things, in fact, that we're only up 22%. I believe we'll give that back in a heartbeat. Um, the only reason I think we're up 22% is because of the quantitative easing the government's done, not because we have a healthy employment rate, not because incomes are going up, not because of all the things that would normally drive a healthy stock market. It's the quantitative easing. So you've got a you've got a house of cards, I believe, in the stock market, which again falls along with history because typically we get three or more drops in a secular bear market. So where are you saying things already. started? Are you saying things started in the year two thousand at the dot com peak? Is that where this cycle started? Yep. When that when it dropped that that was the that was in that started this secular bear market where we've high volatility, no growth. Hmm. We lost fifty percent. It took two years to happen. We get all our money back in 2008. We drop by 60%, and then it takes less than a, just about a year at that point. And now here we are again, and we're up about 20%. Again, I don't think because the market drove it there. I mean, it's because the Fed without the Fed printing, it wouldn't even be here. But what will happen is with each drop, what's really important to understand, especially if you're a retiree, if you're 20, 25, and you just want to ride it out, fine, so be it. But if you're a retiree, um, you you could really be facing a significant drop, and this is what you really got to be cautious about. Because if you're sitting again, the old you need you know as you get older, you need to reduce risk has been thrown out. So many people are sitting there with all their money in the stock market, or major positions in it, and we're facing that third drop. And the key, the a couple of key characteristics of those drops is they get faster and harder with each one, just like it's happened so far. What would be the trigger this time? The, the last time the trigger was the collapse of the housing market. What do you think would be the trigger of this next, what you think is going to be a bigger drop? You know, that's the funny thing. It's usually, you'll get bad news out of bad news. It'll be something out of nowhere. Some people call them black swan events. It'll kind of come, you know, low energy prices right now is causing the market to be really skittish. Um, you, you, you never know, but you see the, you see the volatility increasing because the, the, the percent drops are just insane. You know, Friday was a 300 point drop. It's worse than three years. I mean, we're seeing 1,000 point drops in a week. Um, and that's what happens is we get, you know, in these third, this third drop will be brutally fast. It'll be less than a year, and I believe it'll be greater than 60% because it'll be the third drop. So do you think energy prices falling as far as they have recently is a sign of economic slowdown, and that's why the markets, because normally you'd think lower energy prices would be very positive. People have more money in their pockets. It saves money for airlines and truckers and so on. Normally you'd think it'd be a very positive thing, but lately it's been taken as a negative thing. 
Well, it's because a lot of the, the you know a lot of the debt you know people have bought a lot of the debt from the energy holdings to worried that these the staying low these companies are going to go bankrupt not going to be able to meet the debt and you got the, the derivatives and all the futures and it, it's a very complicated web of what they think is going to happen. The funny thing is is it's all because of the United States lacking we're producing a lot more oil, but I, I believe this statistic they were producing like three million a day, which we weren't you know ten years ago, not even close. And but the the average daily consumption in the world is like ninety million barrels. So it's it's not that much in percent wise. You know the increase. I, I believe a lot of this is just fear driven. When the OPEC to make their agreement to keep the oil prices down, the knee jerk reaction is prices have fallen, but the demand is still there. Uh, Maybe slowing somewhat, but. Worldwide demand with you know China and India still growing with cars being sold is still going to increase in time. So I just don't see that. I think um, you know T Boone Pickens is another individual that's calling me. He, he thinks this drop is something of insignificant. He went on an article the other day to talk about that. You know the the, the demand is still there. It's just kind of a silly knee jerk because OPEC failed to make their agreement to keep it down. So 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 you think this is not a precipitating event for the next big drop? If not lower oil prices, then Again, we had the dot-com crash in 2000. We had the housing bubble in 2007, 2008. What could be the precipitating factor for the next big drop? You know, I, I think it'll be one of these events. We won't even, it'll be something out of the blue. We won't even, you know, call it a black swan event. It'll be something that'll kind of be surprising. Um, you know, and I don't have an answer for you on that one. I okay. just would want to be pre- I just would want to be prepared. I would not want right now to be retiree with a vast majority of my money in the stock market as most people are today. It just yes. isn't worth the risk, especially if you realize, you know, for me, I got to have some reward for the risk. If you really look back and most advisors won't talk about 14 years, I want to show you the last five or six years from 2009. They won't talk about what it did from 2000 in, you know, from, from year 2000. And so if you actually look at, well, what did you actually, and I, when I sit down, I, we, we look back at numbers with, with people that walk in and want me to do a portfolio review with them. And I said, let's look where you at in 2000. And, and it's a real eye opener to realize that they've really not come up that far. You know, in fact, they've lost a huge majority of inflation because their dollars haven't kept up with inflation at that point. The purchasing power, yes. The Let's purchasing power, correct. Right. Just talk for a moment more about individual securities like bonds and stocks versus mutual funds. A lot of people put money in mutual funds because of the diversification and they don't feel they can manage things. How do you make the judgment of putting money into individual securities versus mutual funds? Well, you know, another thing on, on the financial, on the advisor side, 30 years ago, you really, you know, mutual funds were an invention of the 401k in the, in the 80s, in the early 80s. Um, they've now taken over the advisory world where just most advisors strictly use mutual funds. So, I mean, in certain circumstances, I mean, they're fine, but a lot of times when people walk in, you know, there's fees that they're not familiar with, they don't recognize or understand that fees are peeled off on a daily basis, and, you know, they don't understand their advisor's charging them one fee, and then there's a separate fee for the mutual fund fee, and a lot of times people are twice what they think they are in fees because they just don't know where to look. I see a lot of that um, in my world, and so it's it's good to know that mutual funds have, you know, I know everybody says they have fees, but they don't really look and see what those fees are because they're not, they never get a bill for it, so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And that's hurting their returns, particularly on bond funds, because they're already yielding 2%, and the advisor has a fee and the mutual fund has a fee. They don't, not, not too much left for the investor is what you're saying. Yeah, not, as they say, not too much left on the bone. <laughs> Indeed. So you think most people, it's better to be in individual securities than mutual fund, is what you're saying? Yeah, I prefer them, retirees, because, again, it's about the income. If you have income, for me, the number one thing for my retirees 
is you've got to be able to count on the income. And if you have income coming in regardless of the account balance, so even if the account balance drops but your income stays the same, that spells comfort and security for anybody living on that retirement. Yeah. And if you're not living on it, yeah. and if I may, Jordan, I had somebody a couple of years ago came into my office because the advisor told him, listen, just uh, sell 5% of the mutual funds, you'll be fine. The market always, you know, you, you know, it goes up and down, but it always goes up and you'll be fine. Last year, rest of your lifetime. Well, the rest of her lifetime was some years later, and she's crying in my office because she didn't realize that the market was dropping. She was selling more and more of her principal. And when they did come back up, there was not enough principal. There wasn't enough principal as much to grow back. And over time, it eroded her principal to where she was in financial jeopardy. Yeah. So basically, we have about a minute left. Your basic warning here is that we're pretty high in the stock market. You've got to be very careful about that. Do individual securities over mutual funds, and getting an advisor like you is probably a good idea, right? Yeah, focus on the fixed income. You know, look at that four to seven percent. That income, income that comes in regardless of the account balance that you can live on and know and trust that it'll be there for you with quality assets. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Greg Melia. He's the president of the Melia Advisory Group based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Their website is meliaadvisorygroup.com. Thanks so much for some very interesting insights, Greg. Thanks, Jordan, for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks again. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.